then, oh wait, now I have to do the job? Oh wait, now I don't know what I'm doing? Have you ever felt like, I just want to get married, and then you get married, and there's this sense of peace, and then you figure out, oh wait, now I've got to do marriage, like, I've got to like, be in a relationship, this is hard, and all of a sudden, it, isn't it crazy how you can, it can be in like 30 second swings, right? I got peace, and I ain't got no peace. And Paul takes us in this moment in a world that is all up and down. And he says, peace will not be found in circumstances. It will be found in the person of peace, Jesus Christ. And there is some great comfort when we acknowledge that no relationship on this earth, no circumstance on this earth is going to be able to give us a lasting peace. Peace is found in Jesus. And so today... We're going to spend a little bit of time understanding what Paul means when he says, Jesus, he himself is our peace. And so, we're going to look at this together. Because in Ephesians chapter 2, earlier, verses 1 to 10, we began to see that we were not at peace with God. We were enemies of God. We were against God. And yet, in his great love, he sent his son to make us his children and his family by grace alone. And so we can have peace with God. And then, now what we see is that he's going to hone in and talk about how we're not just individuals on an island, but we are brought into a family, into the church. And what should be warring groups can actually find peace together. And so that's possible because he creates one new humanity. Here's the outline for today. It's this. Answering the question, how are we united into one people? How is this hostility between God and us and us and each other? How is, how is all this hostility alleviated? It's this. Through Jesus, there is one peace with God for anyone. Not just a select few, not just for the holy for anyone, not just for one race or ethnicity, for anyone. Through Jesus, there is peace with God for anyone. And number two, through Jesus, there is peace from God with each other. What is peace? Peace is this something where if you say, do you have peace or not, you'll be able to kind of do this kind of assessment of the soul and say, yeah, I got it or no, I don't. Putting words on it sometimes feels a little bit wonky. It is this sense of contentment. It's this sense of rest. But when we're talking about relational peace, what is it between us and God? It's not just the absence of hostility. It's the presence of acceptance. So peace relationally is not just the absence of you're not against me. It's the presence of you accept me, you're for me, I love you, I want good to happen to you. And our first greatest division is between us and God. God should justly be against us and is against us if we are in our sin and not surrendered to him. 
But by faith alone we will see he himself, Jesus Christ, is our peace so that by faith he is not only no longer against us, but he is fully for us. This is the good news that we dive into today. Through Jesus there is peace with God for anyone. That's verses 11 through 13. So let's dive in it together and let's see what it looks like that Jesus is our peace and how we can experience peace with God. Look at verse 11. Therefore, that always is meant to cause your eyes to flip backwards what he's just said, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any of you should talk about how great you are and how you got yourself saved. Nobody should talk that way. Because you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and God made you alive. That's Ephesians chapter 2. And so because God did that work by grace, through faith, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anybody should boast. What's the gift of God? It is your faith. The fact that you see God, and you love what you see, and you, you grab onto Him, and you want to follow Him, it is solely owing to the grace of God in your life. And that work of God in your heart results in good works. He has prepared those good works, a changed character and a life of love. And it will look different for each person. But here he says, therefore, in light of being saved and in light of being then brought into a people together, therefore, I need you to remember something. Notice he says that word twice. Therefore, remember, and then he goes off, and then verse 12, he picks it up again. Remember that you are at that time. Why is he asking them to remember? Who is he talking to? Well, he's talking to this multi-ethnic church filled with Jews and Gentiles. And now he addresses the Gentiles. Jews were those, they were the people of God ethnically. They were the descendants of Abraham. The promises were made to them. They were adopted into God's family. God was for them in a unique way. They had the law of Moses. And then the Gentiles were anybody who was a non-Jew. Multiple ethnicities all gathered into this one church. And so he says, therefore, in light of your salvation, you Gentiles remember something. And here's where he goes. Remember in the flesh, you Gentiles. And now he describes the Gentiles. The major, major dividing line was that Jewish individuals had a seal of God's covenant. It was called circumcision, a command made to Abraham to show it as a sign to one another into the world that God was their God. And so the Jewish people were circumcised. The Gentile people were not circumcised. And so he says this in verse 11. You Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. So the Jews call you Gentiles uncircumcision. He says, now remember this, verse 12. Remember, and now he's going to go through five different ways that the Gentiles did not have the same privileges that the Jews had. Five different ways. Number one, remember that you were at that time, this is before conversion, before God has changed your life, at that time you were separated from Christ. 
Or literally it could be you are without a Messiah. And that's exactly what the problem was. The Jewish people knew they had been told that there was a Messiah to come who would intervene and rescue and make all wrongs right and save from their sins. The Gentiles did not know this message. They did not have in their worldview a coming Messiah to make all wrongs right and to rescue them from their sin. So remember, Gentiles, you didn't have a messianic hope. You didn't have the promise of a Messiah. The Jews did. Number two. You were alienated from the commonwealth or citizenship of Israel. What does it mean to be a citizen? It means not just that you're in geographic boundaries, but it means that all the, the blessings and benefits of being in X city or being under X government, those are yours. And so citizenship is important because if you're not a citizen, then you don't get some of those benefits. You're on the outside looking in. And Paul says, Gentiles, remember, you are on the outside looking in at all the promises that God made to the people of Israel. You are on the outside. The covenants were the people of Israel adopting into the family of God. You just did not get the benefits of being part of God's people. And so, number three, also said you were strangers to the covenants of promise. Covenants, plural, of promise. That is, God made promises to the people of Israel. You might have heard like the Abrahamic covenant or the Davidic covenant. He made promises to them that he would give them a land, right? Or that through your descendants will come the Messiah. Through your seed will come the Messiah. And he also gave them this new covenant idea, which he'll put the law in your heart and he will be fully for you and the fear of God will be placed within you. All of these were said to the people of Israel. Once again, Gentiles outside looking in. They weren't included. Number three, it says, having no hope. Not only did they not have a hope of the Messiah, but there was just this general sense of Compared to the Jews, they were a hopeless people. There's very few things that kind of erode motivation or lead to discouragement like hopelessness. What do I have to live for? What am I going after? A hope is I'm looking at something and I know that it's coming. I don't know when, but my hope is that it's going to happen. The Gentiles were characterized as the no-hope ones. Number five. And then it says, without God in the world. This without God is literally where we get the word atheist from. Ah, theos. Without, ah, alpha privative, theos, God. Without God. They were functional atheists. Now what's interesting is they believed in many gods and they worshipped all kinds of pagan deities. But what's Paul saying? If you don't know the one true God, you do not believe in God. You don't believe in the God of the Bible. You do not believe in the one true God. They were without God. And so, I don't know about you, but that's pretty depressing. It's kind of like the kid 
that wants to play with this group on the playground and you just watch it and this group all of a sudden they huddle up and they leave this kid out and this kid is just standing over in the side doesn't that like make your heart hurt or when you're going to play basketball and all the teams are picked and there's these couple of others that are out there they're not included on the outside looking in but here's what's interesting Unlike those two analogies, they weren't just not picked because they weren't included, but because they were also aggressively trying not to be included. It's almost like they were on the playground and they were picking up mud, throwing it at the people who were trying to include them. Or, hey, I want to play on this team, but you're kicking all your teammates. There's this sense of an activeness that's happening in their lives. It's called sin. It's called rebellion against God. That is the lot of these Gentiles. And so, Paul wants them to remember that they were, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1, dead. Dead in their trespasses and sins. Just like the Jews, but Gentiles, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were sons of disobedience, not sons of God. You were rebels to your core. You were sinners by nature because you came from Adam. And you were sinners by choice because you kept choosing to rebel against God. And the only hope for the deadness of humanity, for the sinfulness of humanity is but now. Verse 13. But now, same idea of verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, caused us to be alive together in Christ. Here it says in verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you once who were far off, on the outside looking in, not included, you have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You have been brought near. If I look at my, one of my children, and they have fallen down and scraped their knee, and they can't even put any weight on it, and I pick up my child and take them into their bedroom and lay them down, I have brought them to their bedroom. They did not bring themselves. I brought them. This is this verse. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off could not bring yourself near. You have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. A couple of observations. One, why does Paul want them to remember this. What, like, why would you want to remember? Like, I want to forget those days that I was not included on the playground, right? I want to forget that time when I wasn't chosen for the team. Like, I didn't make my middle school basketball team, sixth grade. So I tried out again, and I didn't make it in seventh grade. Like, I don't want to think about that a lot. Why does he say Remember. Because something began to happen in the church. There's a couple reasons. 
One is that more than likely, this is not first-generation Gentiles, but second-generation Gentiles because he keeps pressing on them to remember what they probably didn't live out in 3D what their parents did, but now they're a second generation, and he's saying, don't forget, don't forget, you should not be included, you should not be included. Why does he say that? Because what was happening in the church is a bunch of self-righteousness. You can see it on the pages in different places where there was a temptation to look down upon others. You see it all throughout the early church. The Jews, held to the, many of them held to the Mosaic Law, and they were more constricted in what they did. So they observed the Sabbath. They ate certain foods. And the Gentiles were like, I'm free. And they were right. They could eat pork, and it was okay. But what were they tempted to do in their freedom? Look down upon those Jews for not feeling that freedom. So Paul says, in your self-righteous arrogance, remember, you were far off. And you only have this freedom because I brought you near by the blood of Christ. It's meant to dissolve self-righteousness. But it's also meant to erode self-condemnation. And you say, why? Why? Because, isn't that his point? Remember the past so that you can see how much grace I have given you in the present. Remember you were far off so that now you see how far I have brought you. It's like you just thought you were this far away from the destination. But if you remember, you are really this far away so that now when you see how far I've brought you, there's a sense of thankfulness in the heart. There's a sense of exuberation that there, there's grace that's been poured out. Remember. You know something? There's actually a time in the Bible where Paul actually says just the opposite. He says forget. Listen to this. Philippians chapter 3, verse 13 and 14. He says, But the one thing I do, I forget what lies behind and strain forward to what lies ahead, and I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So, which is it? Am I to remember the past or am I to forget the past? It looks like doublespeak. It looks like he's confused and that he's contradicting himself. But how do you synthesize these two ideas? One pastor said it this way. Remember the past to the degree that it reminds you of grace. And forget the past to the degree that it pulls you down and causes you to focus on shame and failure. Remember the past to the degree that it reminds you of grace. Forget the past to the degree that it causes you to dwell on shame and failure. It's the flip side of the same coin. But it is ultimately what Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy. Remember 
Christ. Here's something that's really common. It happens on, on the, it happened when I was in college. It happens on, in, in college Bible studies, I see, but it also happens in small groups in churches. And I was talking with a pastor friend, Kenny Stokes, who preached here a few weeks ago, and a dear mentor and brother. And we were talking about this phenomenon that we kind of both have observed. And it's, it's this idea that when you get together in groups, the holiest thing you can do is talk about how rotten you are. It's called accountability groups. And you get together and you just say, I have done this wrong, I have done this wrong, and here's all the wreck in my life. And you just keep talking about how bad you are. And, but did you know I do this? And did you know I do this? And then you go away and then you come back and your next meeting is just all the bad stuff you did between first meeting and second meeting. Now, the, be really clear. The Bible says, confess your sins to one another. That's a good thing. Kenny Stokes said this, though. The room of confession is always meant to lead to the room of grace. He said, there's nothing particularly Christian of just staying in the room of confession. Because the room of confession and looking at your sin is meant to do what Paul is telling them to do right here. Look to Jesus. Your sin is supposed to remind you you can't fix yourself so that then you'll look to Jesus, not keep looking at yourself and how bad you are and trying to fix yourself. He said this. I thought it was very perceptive. He says it's a form of spiritual cutting where we sit in these rooms and we believe, and it does feel better to harm ourselves. But all it is is a form of self-justification. If I do this enough, if I say this enough, then I can be holier. Instead, you look at sin, you confess it, and it's meant to be, look at Jesus who is my peace. Look at Jesus who is the one that has forgiven me. My room of confession is meant to cause me to run to the room of grace. That's my home. That's exactly what he's doing here. Remember, Gentiles, you were far off. But now, because of the blood of Jesus, you've been brought near. And then he keeps going on about Jesus is our peace. Look at Jesus. Look to Jesus. We say this in the church. Biblical change is more about who you pursue than what you avoid. It's not just, look at all the sin and I'm trying to avoid it, trying to be perfect, I'm trying to do this. But no, you look at sin, you turn your back to sin, and you run after Jesus. This is what Paul is laying out before us. Biblical change happens as we run to Jesus. Don't hear me that we're not supposed to confess sin. Don't hear me that we're not supposed to fight against sin. But hear this, primarily, primary biblical change happens when you run after Jesus. And this is what Paul, why he says, remember, remember, remember. Remember grace. Remember Christ's love for you. Now, how were Gentiles brought near? It says it in verse 13. By the blood of Christ. So that should cause some bells to go off that this was not a simple thing. My sin was not easily solved. 
It wasn't just some small cash payment. It wasn't just a nice meal that all of a sudden that makes all wrongs right. It wasn't some momentary inconvenience. It was the death of the Son of God was required as the only option for my betrayal of God. God put forward His Son because of how serious our sin is. And so, the blood of Jesus is the only thing that takes away the just anger of God towards us. That is how the Bible rightly talks about it, is that God has enmity or hatred for our sin. And therefore, what we needed was the blood of Jesus to cover us completely. And it's only in Him that we have confidence. So not only are we to remember the grace of the past, we are to remember the sacrifice of Jesus as this great sense of hope. He sacrificed. He did it all so that we can be at peace with God. Even in this moment, one of the greatest applications of this is that Christ did pay it all. Your sin fully crucified on the cross so that by faith alone you can be saved, rescued. What's the point? No past is too dirty to redeem. No sin other than the outright rejection of Jesus Christ as Lord and King, which is called the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, no sin is beyond God's forgiveness. None. No mistakes are too big to be covered by the blood of Christ. It is His blood that brings us near. Something outside of us, fixing us, changing us from the inside out so that we are no longer far off but brought near. This is the Christian hope. And so, you remember the five things? It's now reversed. It's now reversed. We were separated from the Messiah. Now, Christ is our Messiah. We were alienated from the citizenship of Israel, and now we are citizens in God's city, the city of God. We have all the benefits of the blessings given to Israel. They are ours we were strangers to the covenants of promise, and now we are no longer. Those promises are ours. We were without hope, now we have hope. We were without God, and now God lives inside of us. Miracle of miracles. The blood of Jesus has brought us near. Now, the next verse in verse 14 says this, And that Christ, Jesus the Christ, He Himself is our peace. He is our peace. We are supposed to remember the, the past grace. We are supposed to remember the blood of Jesus and His sacrifice so that we have no doubts of His love for us. And we are supposed to remember that He Himself is our peace. Now, three types of peace in the Bible. Most of the time when I say, do you feel like you got peace? 
you're thinking about an internal sense of calm and rest, right? We all want that? Can I get an amen? Okay, thank you. I'm just making sure we're all here. You do. That's what we crave and long for is just this sense of rest in the heart, this sense of peace in the heart. But there's two other types of peace talked about in the scriptures. The first is primary. It is peace with God. How in the world do we have peace with God? And then there's peace with one another. How do we have relational peace? The three different types of peace. Right here, the primary emphasis, although the others are included in this, when it says he himself is our peace, he's stating, sinner, you can be brought near to God and have peace with God through the blood of Jesus Christ alone. Christ is our peace. And he has made us at peace with God. Which means, how do we get internal peace? The scriptures state it everywhere. Let's just do a famous verse. Don't be anxious about anything. But in everything, in prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the what? The peace of Christ, which passes all understanding. It blows your mind. It will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. Where does that peace that blows your mind, that, that can rest right here in the heart, where does that come from? It comes through prayer. It comes through being with God. Sitting at his feet, dwelling with him. It comes from remembering him. Being near to him. This week, as I mentioned about March Madness and my peace going up and down with how a team did, that's how my life works, right? Meaning, Circumstances seem to be going okay. I feel okay. One difficult circumstance, one tough email, one hard text, one critical word, whatever it is, all of a sudden what? You're tempted not to feel peace. And so this week, spending time in prayer, asking God to make it plain what it means that Jesus is my peace. I began to ask myself, like, what gives me peace? And you know what my mind went to first? It was to the mountains that I had seen. It was like, a location makes me feel peace. Have you ever felt that? Yeah, you can just go to a place in your brain, oh, the beach gives me peace, or my home gives me peace, my bed gives me peace, anywhere that's not work gives me peace, you know, anytime I'm not with this person gives me peace. We just begin to think about circumstances and people, and that dictates peace. And I'm just going to tell you, like I've experienced in my heart, you'll be let down every time if your peace is in something other than this verse 14. He himself is our peace. And I just wrote this down. Where in the world is my peace? Peace is not in any other person. 
Peace is only in Jesus. God, help me dwell with Jesus and abide with him and set my mind on him and live in his victory and walk in confidence with him because without him I walk in terror. Dependence upon Sean, and I would say you put your name there. Dependence upon me is devastating. It is anxiety-producing. It is terror-inducing. It is sadness-creating. It is depressive when I lean on me. But in Christ, there is confidence to be had. Strength in weakness, courage in the face of danger, love in the midst of trial, endurance in the midst of attack, silence in the midst of slander, contentment in the midst of lust, truth in the midst of lies, repentance in the midst of sin, because Jesus is my focus. Peace will only be found when Christ is enough to bring you peace. Through tears and time with him, I just realized I needed, I needed to just say out loud that for me, I was making something else a functional savior. Something else was to give me peace. He himself is my peace, and nothing else can replace that. And when we do, when something else replaces that, we put too much pressure on that thing. And they crumble. We'll be let down. But the powerful point of verse 14 is, Jesus himself is our peace. Our peace with God so that I am no longer God's enemy, but I am loved as his child. Peace in my heart because he dwells there and he loves me and he's fully for me. He's not only not against me, but he's fully for me. But now where Paul goes is that peace that was purchased on the cross is not only a peace between me and God, and it's not only a peace purchased that if he did the hard thing, right? Taking me a sinner and making me at peace with God, then he can give me peace in my heart. He can do the easier thing. But he can also create peace between one another. And that's where he goes here. The first point is peace with God is for everyone. No matter ethnicity, no matter background, no matter sin past, peace with God is for anyone by faith alone in Jesus Christ. But now... Peace from God with each other. Where do I get this? Look at verse 14. Jesus himself is our peace who did something. Who made us both one. He's looking at this multi-ethnic church where two different ethnic breakdowns, these groups, are looking at each other in condemnation. They're looking at each other in self-righteousness. The Jews... This is how it works sometimes. Holiness is in being restrictive, right? 
What I refrain from makes me holy. The Jews were like, look at me. I'm obeying the Jewish law. I'm not eating this type of food, and you are. I'm holier. I'm observing a certain day, the Sabbath day, and you're not. You're saying any day can be. I'm holier. I observe certain festivals. I observe the Mosaic law. There is this sense of self-righteousness even from the Jews that they were holier because they were more restrictive. Over here, the Gentiles are saying, no, the Bible is clear. Paul has told us I am free and I'm looking down on you because you tell me that you're holier. And all of a sudden, they're looking down on each other. I've been reading a book on conscience. And this one author who wrote this book says this. Ethnic harmony. So get this. This was a ethnic tension. This was a, a tension of a clash of cultures. He says ethnic harmony in Christ was among Paul's highest concerns. It would have been disastrous if the church had divided over these issues related to their individual cultures. And you can be sure, here's the quote, that Satan who was always looking for a split in the log, would bring his axe right down on the crack. They were meant to be dwelling together in harmony. They were meant to be living in freedom, but not allowing their freedom to destroy someone's conscience, and they were meant to be able to agree to disagree, and instead what happened is they began to go at each other. There was division. There was self-righteousness. And what happens here in the scriptures is Paul says, No, stop thinking us and them and realize what was purchased on the cross is one new humanity. One new humanity. Very few things divide as ethnic identity divides. Your culture but here he says, he says, he's made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. How did he do that? What was this hostile wall that was there and how did he break it down while well, he did that by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances? What's that mean? The primary warring point was the Jewish law. You heard that in how I described it, right? I'm free from the Jewish law, and I look down upon you for obeying it. I feel constricted in my conscience by the Jewish law, and therefore I must obey it, and I look down upon you for your freedom. Do you see? It was the dividing line. Now Jesus comes in, and he says, it's not that we're to be a lawless people. No. Love God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. I bring the law of Christ and I do away with the Mosaic law as binding upon the church. Isn't that what he says? Abolish the law of commandments and its ordinances. He did that so that this was so attached to ethnic identity, he did that so that together... We would obey the law of Christ and we would be, as it says here, verse 15, in order that he might create in himself one new humanity, something completely different. 
It was not going to be primarily looking like a Jewish culture. It was not going to be primarily looking like a Gentile culture. It was something new. It was a new humanity. Brian Loretz talks about this word new. This word new is not like, okay, I have a 2005 Honda Civic, and I'm going to get a new one, which means it's a 2008 Honda Civic, which means it's got a few more bells and whistles. It's just a newer version of an older thing. That's not this kind of new. That's a different Greek word. This kind of new is something completely different altogether. It's moving to the Model T. And a motorized vehicle shows up on the scene. It's the coming of the internet. We had nothing like that before and now it shows up on the scene. It's completely new. It's new in kind. And what is happening here is Jesus has come and he is creating a new people where multiple ethnicities dwell together in harmony and they stand forth as a beacon of light of God's glorious goodness. Hear this. Multi-ethnic pursuits is liberalism and it is the social gospel if Christ isn't a part of the pursuit. He's the end, not multi-ethnicity. Multi-ethnicity is a means of giving God glory. That's what Revelation 5 paints for us. Revelation 5 has people from every nation, tribe, and tongue bowing around the Lamb, the Son of God. Here's what Brian Loritz says. In Revelation chapter 5, it's not just diversity, but diversity surrounding the Lamb. Take out the Lamb and all you have is a Coke commercial. But when the Lamb is there, you have the church. We talk constantly about needing to love multiple cultures, about needing to know one another's story because our city is filled with multiple cultures. And the church is regularly known as a place of segregation, both historically and currently. And it cannot be. Not just so that we would have dwelling together in Harmony Coke commercial, but so that Jesus could be seen as powerful enough to break down the dividing wall and to bring peace. This is the point. This is what Paul is saying. I've made a new humanity, a new people. Addressing a multi-ethnic church that was getting ready to split down the middle over cultural differences. No, he says. When you're in Christ, when the Lamb is front and center, when Jesus is the center, it brings peace. So he says, in order that he might in himself, might he create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. The cross kills hostility. There is death to hatred. There's no room for hatred among God's people. There's no room for unforgiveness. There's no room for animosity towards one another. And the lies of the devil is hurt from other people is justification to be against those people. It is not true. The Bible states 
Love your enemies. Pray for those who abuse you. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who are against you. Do good. Pray. Love. Bless. He killed the hostility. Do you hear this? It means it's possible. It's possible for you and your rage. It's possible for you and your struggle to not only find peace with God, but to be able to bless and pray for and do good to those who are against you. It's possible, and it gives God glory. It's what the cross did. It killed hostility. Killed it. He himself is our peace. So some of you, some of you have experienced the pains of aggression, pains of betrayal. Some of you have experienced pains ethnically and racially where you were not included, where you, your culture was not considered, where your story was not valued. This passage says, you are reconciled to God in one body through the cross. And at the cross, there's peace. I want you to know, Christ died so that in your pain, you might find comfort. Christ died so that in the difficulty, you might have someone who can identify with you. Christ died so that you have a place to go with the depth of the pain. The cross is where Paul is pointing the church to. The cross. He himself is our peace. The cross provides the freedom to live in disagreement without division. The cross crushes self-righteousness and judgmentalism. The cross points us to Christ, who is our peace. So what does it look like to step forward in the peace of Christ? I just want to say, church, we've been made, purchased, past tense, it's happened. We're one new humanity. Let's pursue one another in love. That means listening to one another's stories, being a sounding board when someone is hurting, praying for one another, allowing someone to confess their sins to you and you pointing them to Jesus and coming alongside them, you sharing your life and your journey with somebody else, pursue one another because the cross has said peace is possible, no matter how different we are. Peace pursues. For peace. You know something else? If the dividing wall of hostility is broken down, it means there's hope to go to the nations. It's, there's hope to go to a people who are completely against God with their lives. They've never heard of Christ. There's hope because the cross breaks down that divide. The cross makes it possible for lost people to be rescued and saved, and so we go. The promise is the gospel will be proclaimed to the ends of the earth, and then the end will come. Jesus is going to go with us as we make disciples here in this city and to the ends of the earth. So we go because peace has been purchased on the cross. It's something that's happened. So we go. 
The gospel will be proclaimed through us. I don't know if you remember the story of Jim Elliott. Jim Elliott went to Ecuador with some other friends to minister to the Quechua Indians. And while there, he was killed by a group of people called the Aka Indians as he was pursuing loving the Horani. His wife, Elizabeth Elliot, after he died, had a decision to make. And she ended up staying as a missionary with her daughter and another sister, Rachel Saint, sister of one of Jim Elliot's friends, Nate Saint. And for years, they ministered to the very people that killed her husband. Now, put that in the context of what we're dealing with here. Peace has been purchased on the cross. Jim Elliot went in hope that the gospel would go to a people and would be spoken and that peace would root itself in their hearts and they would be changed. And what happened? It got him killed. Just because God promises peace, he doesn't promise the timing of that peace. That's why peace is a pursuit. But you go in the confidence that God goes with you, and if you have him in your heart, you have peace. And so although you don't know the outcome, you still go. And his wife stayed. Converts were made. Even a story of Nate Saint's son, Steve Saint, in the very river that his dad, Nate Saint, was killed in, Alongside Jim Elliot, his son Steve Saint was later baptized in that river by the very people who killed Nate Saint and Jim Elliot. How does this happen? It's when these individuals believed that Jesus is peace and that the gospel goes forward and it's powerful to change and so we keep speaking it we keep living it but we cannot control the outcome that's the point that's why Paul says strive to live at peace with all men as far as it depends on you do your part be a peacemaker be a gospel speaker it gives us hope to go to the nations and it gives us hope in this church that God is after what he has already purchased, which is peace. And so we must do our part to walk forward in peace. And then finally, I make it full circle. How in the world do we find peace in our hearts? I said that we stop and we pray, right? We spend time with him. And he begins to become more central than all the circumstances. And God can give peace. Do you know what we're supposed to be corporately? Here's what it says. Isaiah 56 verse 7. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house will be called a house of prayer for all peoples. You get this. My house, he says, my family, this one new humanity, the church, is meant to be a house for all peoples. And what is the foundation of those all peoples? It is that they commune with me in prayer. 
And so that's how we end today. We take the Lord's Supper as a means of prayer. That we stop and we bow our hearts and we pray. We pray for internal peace. We pray for those that don't have relational peace with God that God would break through. We pray for opportunities that we can speak the gospel. We pray for courage when we're tempted to run. We pray for endurance when we're tempted to give up. We pray that God would bring unity and peace in our relationships. We pray. And so let's do that together. Father, We thank you that peace with you is possible for anyone, anyone who would call upon you as Lord, anyone who would confess their sins and run to you by simple faith alone can be brought to peace with you. Father, we thank you that because you did the hardest thing of giving us peace with you, You can give us peace in our hearts. So we just ask for the grace of being able to focus more on the person and work of Jesus Christ than our circumstances. Father, please protect us from putting the weight on other people to be our peace. Or on other circumstances, Father, help us to put that weight upon you. You, oh God, be our peace. And Father, in this moment, we ask that we know that peace individually and peace corporately, it comes when we intentionally pursue one another across cultures, that we delight in our different cultures. We don't try to get rid of that uniqueness. We live together in harmony as one new humanity, a new people. And Father, that we stop and we pray. And so right now over this Lord's Supper, Father, I ask for the wind of your Holy Spirit to convict where conviction is needed, to comfort where comfort is needed, to bring peace between brothers and sisters where there's tension, Father, to bring restoration and hope spiritually where there has been distance. And Father, I ask that you would come and you would save those who do not know you. Whatever it is right now, oh God, have your way with us. Lift our hands and our hearts and say, do whatever with us. Our yes is on the table. Father, take us. Take us where we need to go. And so in this same spirit of prayer, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. There's two tables in the front and one in the back. And just as this passage said, we were brought near by the blood of Christ. That's what we remember at this table, at this time. We remember the blood of Jesus as our only hope to be brought near. We remember the blood of Jesus is what purchases us peace. And so when you are ready, if you're a follower of Jesus, you can get up from your seat, and you can get the bread and the cup, and you can spend time in prayer with the Lord, but it's also a time when you can reach across the aisle to a neighbor, when you can go to someone and just stop and pray for them. Whatever is needed, you spend this time seeking the peace that is purchased on the cross. If you're not a follower of Jesus, don't take of this meal. But as I have already articulated, this time is for you to find peace with God. And that comes through confession of sin. And by running to Jesus with your heart, saying, Jesus, you're my only hope. You're my Savior. I need you to rescue me and make me new and change me from the inside out. Don't wait and try to fix yourself. Come to him as you are. Call out for him to change you. For this is solely a work of Him. Wherever you find yourself.
Let's take the Lord's Supper together.